Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hello, James Holland here on the We Have Ways of Making You Talk podcast. Now, I've left Al back in England and I'm in the United States. And this is a conversation I had when I was at the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. And uh, an extraordinary place that is too. If you're ever over there, I really do urge you to go and visit it. But while I was there at the, uh, at the annual conference, I hooked up with an old friend of mine, Alex Ritchie, Dr. Alex Ritchie, I should say. Now, she's a Canadian historian, but actually she's married to a Pole and she lives in Warsaw and teaches there as well. And the family story she's inherited is just incredible. And although it's a little bit longer than usual, I have to say for the whole hour we were talking, I was sat there completely transfixed. It is just the most extraordinary story. I have to warn you, some of it is a little bit harrowing, but I really do hope you find this just every bit as utterly fascinating as I did. I'm in New Orleans, and one of the great things about coming here is there's lots of old friends, and a particularly good old friend is Alex Ritchie. And Alex, here you are. And um, you have a very interesting life because you are Canadian, born and bred. I am. But you now live just outside Warsaw. Yes. And you teach in Poland. Yes, I do. And you're married to um, a a Pole who is incredibly eminent and prominent in Poland. And his, your father-in-law was one of the great war heroes. Polish war hero. Well, I don't know that he's so much a war hero. I think what, what, first of all, his name is Władysław Bartoszewski. And what made him really interesting is not so much that he was a war hero in the military sense, but what he did was he was an 18-year-old young guy, grew up in a kind of normal, you know, sort of his dad was the head of the Polish, newly, newly formed Polish bank. So this was this patriotic moment, you know, when the, when the Poles had, had been in Poland be recreated in, in 1918 and, you know, wow, new country and everything mm-hmm. else. And when I first went to Poland, in, and I was there on the 11th of November, because my Canadian British family are military, it was always a somber, miserable, terribly, you know, very thoughtful day. And I couldn't get over it when, you know, I put my little red poppy on and went outside in Poland, and all of a sudden, wow, you know, the streets are covered with people <laughs> jumping up and down and doing really? That's trumpets amazing. and stuff. Like, what is going on? And because for them, it's the recreation of the Polish state after 123 years. So, so, of course. So he becomes part of that generation that's born into that newly created mm. Poland. They call themselves the Columbus generation because they're like finding the new path after all these uh, you know, decades and decades of being under uh, uh, Russian, Prussian and Austrian rule. So they're finding this new way. They adore their new country, the newly created country. They're not going to give it up. That's why all the war surprising stuff happens because they're so patriotic, so adamant mm. about keeping it. He's part of that generation. 18 years old, finishes school that spring, is, start, is going to start university in the fall, um, uh, 1st of September. Of course, Hitler starts to, you know, starts the war. And what we don't really realize, I think, in the West is how quick and how sudden the attack on Poland was. And Hitler always hated Warsaw. So he starts bombing the smithereens under von Richthofen from the very beginning. And so, you know, you're in your apartment or, you know, it's a very elegant life. People now think of Warsaw as the sort of behind the Iron Curtain kind of mm. drab and dreary. But back in the 20s, it was very elegant. It was a very beautiful city, wasn't it? Yeah, just like you know, Prague or, or, or Vienna. Mm. I mean, it was very much one of those places, maybe not as glamorous as those, but it still it was an amazing place. And so, Lots so, of lovely architecture and buildings yeah, and parks yeah, and all the rest was, of it. it, was, it was, and townhouses you know, and villas and things. Absolutely, that sort of classic Central European yeah. town with lots of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, typical architecture. Well, you got a taste of it from going to Krakow, which wasn't particularly bomb. Uh, yeah, although Krakow's uh, different again because Krakow's much, much older, so that really is a Renaissance right. medieval town, whereas it, I would say more like um, sort of the modern parts of the 20th parts of Vienna, uh, right. Budapest maybe would be the more, more equivalent. But anyway, the, you get the idea. It was a very do. elegant, lovely life. And here he is, the sort of son of a bank, banker and all this kind of thing. And all of a sudden, bang, you know, uh, bombs start falling. Um, and his father uh, realizes the Germans are coming. And th- in their family, like many, many, many people I've talked to, they think, 
Well, you know, it's better than the Russians. You know, the Germans last time around in Warsaw weren't so bad. You know, they, you know, okay, it was occupying and everything else, but they were, they were pretty good, and they sort of let Pilsudski recreate Poland. So, okay, well, you know, they're a pretty civilized bunch, so we're not really going to be too worried about it. But then the bombings keep going, and, and, and you know, the, the, the invasion in Poland gets sort of more and more unpleasant, and then finally Hitler, Hitler wins. Um, but the bombing of Warsaw is actually very, very intense, even at the very beginning. And there's, there's a lot of evidence to show that Hitler already had in his mind this Generalplan Ost idea that you're going to really wipe out these big cities of Central and Eastern Europe and replace them with kind of German architecture, German you know, culture and everything mm-hmm. else. And you kill all the Jews, you get rid of all the Slavs, and you, you recreate these fake German cities in these places. And this was one of the ideas. So, so clearly Hitler... So there's a whole ideological thing going on. Already. And, and of course the Poles have no idea about this yet. They just no. think, well, the Germans are kind of going through, but, you know, it's not going to be that bad. Um, and so Vladik's dad, um, you know, the older Vladik, both, both have the same name, Vladislav, um, uh, says, well, I think you should be a stretcher bearer for the Red Cross. At least you can be helpful. So he signs up with the Red Cross, starts getting bodies out of the rubble, which is, you know, pretty badly bombed. About 20% of buildings are, are damaged or destroyed in the first few weeks of the bombing in mm-hmm. Warsaw 1939. It's very, people don't realize it was quite bad. Anyway, so, um, so he's registered. The reason that's important is that he's registered with the Red Cross then. So another thing that happens, of course, the Germans come in. Hitler does his victory parade in down through the middle streets of Warsaw. Um, no poles are allowed to go. There's no nobody around. They they check out all the buildings, and you're not allowed to be there. Um, and Hitler, at the last minute, changes the route because he's already fa- afraid of um, mm-hmm. assassination attempts. Anyway, uh, a few weeks later, um, the Germans start uh, the, this idea of creating this camp at Auschwitz. Um, and the reason for Auschwitz at the very beginning is the creation of a camp for Polish intellectuals. The Polish sort of, they want to decapitate the, the yeah. head of Polish society. It's not originally a camp for Jews. It, it becomes that later and, of course, m- very much more murderous. Um, and so he's at home and all of a sudden the, there's, a, there's a roundup in this little district which, where I live now in Warsaw. And, uh, and all men between age 16 and 60 are forced out of their houses or their apartments Rounded up in this central square, Plattsville Sona, Wilson Place, named after President Wilson. God, it's incredible, and, uh, isn't it? Isn't then, it can uh, you just imagine yeah, that happening now? Yeah, no, it's 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 mind-boggling. All and these families just being ripped to pieces. Yeah, ripped to pieces. Nobody knew what was happening because, as I said, they sort of thought the Germans weren't going to be that bad yet. They didn't get it, um, and so they and so they uh, take him to with this group of men. And by the way, Vitold Trulecki, who's very famous now, yeah, 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 yes, about yes, him. Yes. Uh, who's you know in, got mm-hmm. himself into Auschwitz? This is the same transport to Auschwitz, second transport from Warsaw to Auschwitz. Anyway, so he gets on this. And Auschwitz you know, is already an, uh, an army barracks. Are, uh, a Auschwitz, Polish army barracks. Well, it started earlier as a, it was an Austrian army barracks in the 19th century. So when you go there, and this is a lot of people get confused. It doesn't look you know so bad. These you know you see the Arbeitmachtfrei sign, and then you go in, and there are these sort of brick buildings, and you think, well, you know, it doesn't look that bad. Well, of course. The, the way in which people were treated there is what makes it so absolutely appalling. Yeah, and of course, the bit that everyone envisaged in their mind is, is Auschwitz-Birkenau, which is the second of camp. Of course, of course. But it was pretty horrific in Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. So there's this young guy, 18 years old, no idea what's going on, in this group of guys. They're, set, they're, they're stuck, sent to a horse stables in the centre of Warsaw, in the centre park in Warsaw, Wajenki Park. Uh, and they're forced to lie uh, on the ground for two days, and then oh and then they're t- taken to you know the typical the goods goods freight wagons, mm-hmm. and then they don't know where they're going, no idea, you know, nothing to eat. The whole you know this is the Germans have now perfected this that they've run been running camps from Dachau and so on, quite from right at the beginning of their uh, reign. So, so keeping people discombobulated and, and kind of in the dark that's all part of it. It's all part of it. It's all very very carefully thought out, and they perfected, of course, as things go along. So God, it's just too sinister. It is, it is, it's, just, it's horrific. I mean, it's, it's just hard to get your head around it. So then, you know, typical, they get there at night after a journey of a day and a half. They get there at night, you know, doors open, rouse, rouse, with reflector lights in their eyes. They can't see people break their ankles because they're being shoved off mm. down. On, you know, it's really quite high up if you see those cars. It's not like a little mm-hmm. s- sort of step down. And, yeah, three or four feet, isn't it? Yeah, and, and you know, you're... you're jumping in the dark onto mm-hmm. uneven ground, ground and, yeah. and he said you know, dogs biting trying to rip your ankles and rip your clothes off and stuff just horrific I mean, oh my God. and this is but this is classic entry to Auschwitz and to the other camps this is the Germans uh, perfect this and, and they use it the whole time in the war which is 
awful. Just even these things are just so horrific. Pushed into the camp, same drill for everybody. And, and we, you know, you've heard this many, many times, but this actually just happens to him. Um, you know, whole body is shaved, hair, but all pubic hair, everything else is horrible with these kind of dull razors that cut your skin and then you get some horrible disinfectant on you and, and, and you're supposed to have a, a stripy uniform, which happens later. But in his case, they hadn't enough stripy uniforms. So he got an old Wehrmacht uniform, clearly some with the epaulets and stuff pulled off. Clearly some guy died in it because there's a big, huge splodge of blood on it. So, you know, this is already not exactly the most pleasant thing. And wooden clogs and, you know, it's going into September. It's going to go into the winter. And that's all you get. Uh, he and his colleagues who tried to, for example, uh, cut paper cement bags to shove down their clothes to get a bit of insulation would just be beaten to a pulp you know this is a, not even that you know you verdammt you know you're stealing property from the germans uh, because you're trying to get some paper to pad your but it's unimaginable isn't it it is it's just beyond belief and the thing about going to auschwitz now and i take my groups from the from the world war ii museum um, groups through auschwitz and i i i see the difference between going with a kind of tour guide when you're going with thousands of people almost like a sort of sausage machine you go from one building to another building and and you're sort of trundling along behind other people and it's it's very sanitized and Mm. so on when i went there with him i had a totally different experience because he would say you know you don't get it just by looking around now even though they've tried to preserve the terrain as it was but, but, but what does he think going back there i mean when he when when he was there what was well he he became the head of the international auschwitz committee and and he was the founder of this because he wanted to preserve auschwitz and and there was you know the people didn't the know warning what to from do. history exactly and 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 you know even though he was first of all concentrated on auschwitz one and birkenau of course there's a the whole terrain that's it's a huge complex but so what he would talk about was even at the very beginning just the sheer brutality of the SS guards and the capos. So again, the Germans had created the capo system where they got they started with criminals from Dachau who were brought to Auschwitz, and they were rewarded. The more brutal they were to the new coming prisoners, the more Jesus. they were rewarded. So if you beat somebody, how to do death, you how do you survive in that? Well, it was interesting because he is, talked is, about how much this is luck, luck. Do you think? Oh, huge amount, of course, is luck. But he said, you know, the very beginning, the very first day, you're forced in Auschwitz, you were forced to stand in these rows at this roll call. And you were you were you were you had to stand there in in, in, in you know upright and and he said the very first day they made you stand for sort of two hours you can imagine you're you're cold you no idea what's going on uh, and sometimes they had roll calls that went on for twelve or sixteen hours and you weren't allowed to move if you crumpled you were beaten to death if, if you fell down and so what happened in this very very first roll call and he realized mentally psychologically so roll calls could last sixteen hours if they could they didn't they didn't often but from time to time if somebody if a prisoner went missing. This was also an attempt to prevent escapes, to prevent prisoners from misbehaving. So they knew that the whole camp would be would be punished and that some people would die if you tried to escape. So in this very first roll call, he's standing there, you know, like five minutes ago, he was living a normal life. He just yeah, they're drinking wine, having nice having food his, having with his, their family. Yeah, exactly. And all of a sudden, he and he recognizes a lot of people because they're neighborhood people. I mean, I, I live mm. near Plattsville, so I see people all the time. And he, and he was um, two rows behind a... An old schoolmaster, an old school teacher, he, who he knew, he never had him as a personally as a teacher, and this old old guy could just couldn't stand, and he and he he fell down, and the guards came in and beat him to death, and it, it became commonplace for him. He, it became absolutely normal life. But what he said at that moment is that there were thousands of of men, because they were all men at that point. Later, women came to the camp, but at that point, there were all men standing in rows absolutely hating the guards, hating what was happening to them. And yet they realized from that very beginning moment that they couldn't do anything. That, that if they, if, if they, and he felt such shame, total disgrace. You know, how can we just stand here? And it's a sort of a beginnings of an explanation for me of that age-old question, well, why didn't the Jews rise up? Why did, why did people follow? Why did they? And, it, and he examined himself psychologically so often because he was a very energetic guy, you know, very, you know, mm. a doer, you know, very, very much the sort of person who'd say, I'm not standing for this, you know. And yet, and yet he said this, this psychological somehow shift that happened when you became a prisoner like that. And I imagine this is very much the same experience that actually anybody has if you're going into like a high security prison. Yeah. If, you, if you, you know, you're put in a uniform, your head's shaved, you're, 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 you're treated by all sorts of rules that you don't understand. But he said that you, you just, you just had to switch your mind. And, and the, 
it, it may be a cliche, it sound like a cliche, but it really happened to him that the, the commandant stood in front of the group of newcomers and said, and pointed to the chimney and said, the only way you're getting out of here is through that chimney. And he said it was a psychological breakdown he'd never experienced in his life. And he, that's, he wasn't a nightmare sort of person and he wasn't a sort of miserable, you know, no. suffering from this overtly uh, sort of person. But he said that he did have nightmares about that moment when he was in Auschwitz and knew that he, 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 was, he had entered a world where all the norms of society just were flipped gone. on their head. It gone. And not even like a prison where you could sort of understand it. Just gone. In other words, the more... I don't know, decently you behaved, the more uh, noble you were, or the more, you know, it whatever it was. Nothing. counted for nothing. counted for nothing, counted against you. And uh, I asked him once, I remember, because he was for a very short time uh, forced to pull one of these huge concrete rollers with a handle, you know, the, mm -hmm. to sort of flatten out the earth. They, they didn't flatten out the earth, but, they, but, uh, but he said that the, the, um, the, 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 even at the very beginning, the people who were being singled out then were, were Jews and priests. And, the, and that the SS guys, the sort of torment that they would do, they made them um, pull these rollers around, doing nothing, you know, not flattening out any earth or whatever. It's just a complete waste of time. It was just a waste of time, like, you know. And then, and then these SS guys would jump on the, on the iron bar, you know, and then beat the, beat the people who were trying to pull the rollers just to make it heavier. And then the capos would have games, like, could you kill somebody with one blow of an iron bar to the kidneys, uh, or did it take you two? And if it took you two, you lost the game, you know, and this kind of thing. It just, just torment, just, just killing and maiming but, people. But, but if, you're that, if you're that capo, if you're that guard, I mean, how do you get to that point? I, I think it, it became, and, and we see it very often in, in the Nazi system and also in the Soviet system and elsewhere in the world. Uh, all, actually, any of these, these totalitarian and brutal, brutalist systems or closed environments, prisons or whatever, there have been many, many examples uh, since that if you offer a system of rewards, which is what the Nazis exactly did, uh, they get these cr criminals in from Dachau or whatever, call them capos, give them a, a different uniform, put them in charge of these people and say, the more brutal you are, the more you're, you're going to be rewarded with more food or more freedoms or whatever. And if you're, if you're not, if we see you sneaking food to the prisoners, if you're nice to them or whatever, you're getting right back in line with them. And the thing is that and, and, and most of these capos were also killed along the way. And of course, once you're talking about Birkenau, you're talking about a whole different system where you, you have, I mean, it happened in Auschwitz one too, where you have people who are, for example, sorting the clothes, sorting the, 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 the valuables from the prisoners who've been taken, brought into the camp. And they get that job Sonder for... Sonder Commando gets the job for five months and then they're killed and then you get a, then you get a rotation because you don't want anybody getting you know, living too long in the system. So it just became a, wow. a system of absolute horror, complete horror. And, uh, and, and as I said, going through the camp with him, when he would say, you know, that's a place where, you know, people were hung up by their, their wrists were shackled together and they were hung up on an iron bar and their shoulders broken and then, you know, for two days and then they died. Or this is a place where, you know, you had to march past a, 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 an orchestra playing friendly, jolly marching tunes on your way both back in out to go to work outside and then back in carrying the bodies of those people who died and and and, and he said starvation it was just killing by starvation and work and and he said you could tell when somebody was going to die they became what they called musulmen which is i don't know why they call them that but they became you know sort of waxy faced and and had a kind of strange look in their eyes and, and walked around kind of like zombies and he said you just see that look on somebody, you just know that's it. They're not going to live for more than a day or maybe two. And that was it. And, and this is just very much a part of the whole system of terror and the camp structure um, that, that was built up deliberately by the Nazis from the very beginning. And how much does that go back to, to Hitler himself? And how much is that Himmler and people below Himmler? It's very much, um, it's very much thought out. I mean, Hitler approves of all of this stuff. But the people who really come up with this system are Himmler and people like Heydrich and Eichmann. And, and then, you know, there's a, the remnants of the SA who, who really got, had a lot of fun beating people up and so on. There's this, because this whole culture of violence that begins from, right from the, you know, even before Hitler even right. thinks about getting into the The power. street fights and all that The street fights all set up, you know, chains and, and, and iron bars against the communists and Red Wedding or whatever in Berlin. I mean, these were, this was this part of the, the violence that the Nazis used, which is in turn a, a remnant of the First World War, war violence, which you've got all, you know, this, this amazing society in Imperial Berlin or Imperial Germany with the, with the 
Kaiser strutting around and it's a very, very strict formal system. Berlin, the most hugest industrial society on the, on, the, on, on the continent, hugely wealthy, very, very important place. And all of a sudden it goes from this pompous, sparkly, you know, to, nothing. to absolute rock bottom and then being told you're responsible for the war, having all these guys come back who are homeless, you know, nothing to do. They've been on the front They're They're brutalized because, you know, being mm-hmm. on a place like the Western Front and the Eastern Front, you know, you don't and want to... And then the Nazis come along and say, be a street fighter. And, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. Either be a street fighter or, you know, be a, be a Stahlhelm guy and you can go beat up Poles or Czechs or whatever, you, you know, uh, name the task. And this is the thing. So, it, so it's this violence, also violence of the Bolshevik Revolution, which, of course, mm-hmm. Hitler uses to make people frightened once he takes yep. power, but he also uh, learns a lot from Bolshevik violence. I mean, that's another thing, is that they, they learn from each other, and uh, they learn how to how to create a system where, where violence is underpinning everything. And it does to the very end, no matter how Hitler dresses himself up, you know, 1933 at Potsdam Day, when he's dressed up in his top hat and tails and bows before Hindenburg and is all looking like a sort of upper-middle-class gentleman and whatever. Underpinning all of it is, is violence. It's just It just is that kind of system. Mm-hmm. And so you can dress it up, you can make it look nice, which, which Goebbels very carefully did. You know, when he was giving a speech to certain districts of Berlin, he would, you know, talk about how they wanted to bring law and order or whatever, but, the, you know, five hours later he'd be making a speech in Red Wedding and they'd be beating up communists with iron bars and, and, and chains. So it, it, it was all so carefully planned and so carefully done. And this is one of the things that... But it's, 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 it's the harnessing of willing people. I mean, this is what I find so completely upsetting. When I see people spouting their absolute bile on Twitter or Facebook or whatever it might be, yeah. I mean, people say yeah. things which are just so completely unacceptable. Absolutely. And you're getting this hint, you're just getting this little vision of yeah. what could happen. Yeah, exactly. Of, of, you know, you, you go, go from sort of really sort of brutal, horrible words yeah. Yeah. to actual physical brutality, yeah. and, the, and the stepping stone is, is, is not great. Oh, you're so right. This is exactly And that's what I find what's so worrying yeah. about. What's today's world yeah. and, and, yeah. and you know all the you know and this this is what's i mean here we are in the united states i mean you know what what trump is doing is breaking down precedent and once yeah. you've broken down precedent once you've taken down sort of the normal standards of western democratic statesmanship yeah it's really hard to rebuild it again. it's very I mean, hard it's, to get it back you know we're, we're, we're sort of okay in, in in the uk despite the divisions of brexit yeah but it has polarized society yeah. and, and and you can see how things descend yeah i completely agree with you and i think that that you know i always people often ask me but i spent my life studying this stuff and people often say well what you know what about the holocaust you know the camps the auschwitz terrible terrible and i always say no the the the, it, the game's over already when you say to a jewish kid that you're not allowed to have a pet because you're jewish or you can't sit on a park bench you're done well i so i've i've just been uh, I've just been looking at this amazing um, home films, this archive that's been, I think it's been there for quite a while, but it's, it's been sort of just discovered in inverted commas. Yeah. And uh, so the BBC is doing a series about it. And um, they've got all this kind of home movies. You know, Jim's really into that. Yeah, yeah. and, and so I had to sit through a whole load of his stuff the other day and kind of sort of comment on it and say, yeah. you know, what's going on? Who is it? Why is this there? What was really shocking about it was you saw... In April 1933, some footage of Jews being persecuted, and yes. they're just being pushed around in the street. Yeah. They're kind of daubing across yeah. to it's David all, it's on all the. Over. It's game over. It, it is. Right it absolutely is. But 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 no one sort of no one is at this point kind of sending Jews off to camps or anything like that. But a few minutes later, I was watching a different set of footage, which is a, 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 a kind of sort of a bunch of films put together from the Eastern Front, and that was just. Gobsmacking, because it was, this was people being strung up, you, you're watching them being hanged. Exactly. I mean, it's like, yeah. it's like watching something out of the sort of, you know. Is that the Ukrainian doctor's footage, the one that you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, that's the one. It's, it's, oh, it's, my it's, God. Yeah. And, then, and then the people being shot in the back of the head, and you see the people sort of being led to it, and they kneel down, and they're shot in the head, and they're, yeah. kicked, they're just yeah. literally boot pushed into That's what it comes to. I mean, it, it exactly. is absolutely horrific. Yeah. I, I can't even begin to tell you how profoundly upsetting I found the whole yeah. thing, but yeah. because of... Of, and I'm not saying we're just about to descend into the abyss or anything like that. But what but, you see yeah. is is the stepping stones are Absolutely. not. And and the thing right. is that you know, as you say, 1933. Well, what happens? The Reichstag fire. Hitler puts in the Enabling Act. First thing he does is start murdering you know uh, members of parliament, members of the Reichstag, for example. Mm. There's a really lovely, well, lovely. It's not, but I mean, a great memorial just outside the Reichstag in in um, Berlin. 
with sort of shards of stone with the with the names of all of, of the murdered uh, members of the Reichstag, and there there's some hundred and something of them. They were just murdered on this murdered. in their in their homes or whatever. Oh. These are the sort of mm. representatives of, of government. Okay, they were social democrats. Okay, they were communists or whatever. Oh my goodness, let's murder them. You know, once you're doing that, you're 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 done. Yeah. And, and and okay, I'm not. I was certainly not a, a great fan of the of the Berlin uh, or the German Communist Party, which wanted to overthrow Weimar too and, and create a Bolshevik society. Not my cup of tea either, because I hate radicalism on either side. But you don't go just murdering these people because you mm. don't like them very much. The whole thing is completely crazy. And you're absolutely right. What's happening in our society with Twitter and and this absolute rudeness? I mean, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't sit in front of somebody you didn't like very much and say, you know, fill in the blank what you've just read on Twitter. It's just simply unbelievable, and 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 it's so unacceptable. Mm. And it's the it's the erosion of norms. So people might have been thinking these horrible thoughts all along, but you just learn that you can you can think them in your head and you can go home and say them to your your cat or something. But uh, but you know you you don't act on them. You've got to learn to control yourself. You probably learned whatever it is. I don't like fill in the blank. Um, you got to probably go home and work on yourself. Figure out what it is in your childhood that made you think that way. But this is not what happened. What happened instead was Hitler and the Nazis gave vent to yeah. this to the worst tendencies in all of us. And if you tell they somebody, made acceptable the kind of you know yes. man's basis thoughts. Yeah. I mean that's yeah. the point. And I don't believe having again interviewed hundreds of people that 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 um, uh, Germans you know went into 1933. All of them rabid anti-Semites who were keen no. to set up Treblinka. Uh, but if you give permission. And that's the scapegoat, and you tell them every single day, and you work on it, whatever, and then you do Kristallnacht. Even Kristallnacht, there was, uh, the, you know, as you well know, of course, that there were SIPA reports, or the Secret mm-hmm. Service reports, that the Gestapo went around and listened to the Germans' reactions to all of these things. Um, th- they did this and found out that the euthanasia program was very unpopular. So they kind of, well, they didn't really stop it, but they hid it away. Uh, and Archbishop Galen and all these other people who spoke up against it were also important. Um, but the but the Kristallnacht as well, there were a lot of people who. I'm not so sure I like the the fact that people are smashing the the shops. You know, some people didn't like it because it was messy. Some people didn't like it because it was violent. Some people didn't like it because their friend, you know, who was a doctor down the road who was Jewish, his shop was smashed and he was, you know, beaten up. So there was personal contact as well. And then some people uh, were gung-ho and thought it was great and we're going to get rid of the Jews from from German society. Um, But there was still a a kind of a whole range of reactions that that all is documented in these Gestapo secret, secret reports. And so that's the funny thing. It wasn't like, oh, yes, they're all like zombies. People still don't have choice. You could make yep. choices. And another thing I find... Which well, there's is, also the amazing book that Gittus Rennie does on Frank oh, Stangle. Yeah, yeah, and you just yeah. see that constantly... I mean, he doesn't yeah. start off bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, just, he, he, yeah. he just keeps meeting yeah. forks in the road and keeps taking and the wrong taking one. taking the wrong one. And, and every time he takes the wrong yeah. road, it just gets him deeper and deeper and deeper and he can't get out and he, and he takes the carrot's well, option. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the Kurt Waldheim thing, you know, mm. who was the head of the United Nations years and years ago and he... Uh, they discovered then when he was in, in the SS, when it was in Greece, um, that he was with a small unit and two of the guys refused to shoot uh, partisans and prisoners and he was quite happy to participate in, in one way or another. Um, I'm not sure if he was actually guilty of a, of a war crime, but he was at least quite <coughs> gung-ho and, yep. and it was possible even even within the, you know, of a unit, you could make one choice or another the, the, choice. The, the very best, he lacked moral courage. Yeah, exactly. And you see it even in the, you know, the Christopher Browning's fantastic work on the, on the uh, ordinary men, where he says, you know, the, the, the Germans take this, this group of ordinary Hamburg policemen who are perfectly normal family guys and a little bit too old to be in the, in the Wehrmacht and stuff, brings them over and says, well, we've got a really unpleasant task. We've got to kind of shoot a village of people. But if you don't want to do it, you don't have to. And some people say, OK, I'm not going to do it. You know, and then and then the peer pressure starts to work at them, and they start to say, "Well, I guess we better partake." But they were all, and then he divides the the the. I mean, it's a very broad strokes thing, but he d- divides this group after the end of his research into three main categories: those people who were always reluctant, who remained on the margins, who never really participated. They sometimes had to because if you didn't, you yourself would either get shot or punished. And uh, those in the middle who were kind of indifferent, who did it because you do it, and then those who really learned to love killing, really enjoyed killing, yeah. uh, and, and, and got a great pleasure. It's an amazing book, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's absolutely yeah. horrifying. I mean, yeah. it's, it, yeah. it, 
yeah, great, great piece of work, and, and there are more yeah. and more of these things now coming out. And 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 what I think is fantastically interesting is to show is to see the psychology of people. So I would imagine in any society, and this is why I hate hate groups of people or countries that say, "Oh well, we wouldn't be like that." It's like, well, yeah, maybe most people wouldn't be, but there's always going to be the people who are the Archbishop Galen's who actually speak out or the resistors, and then there's going to be those people who really quite love doing this. Yeah. It gives them power. They get a uniform, or they get a gun, yeah, or they get whatever. No one's exempt from this. Um, Nobody. I mean, no. it would happen in Britain. Absolutely no doubt about it at all. Um, but, but so, what happened to your father-in-law? I mean, he's he's on the first draft. Yeah, he, he's he gets and yet he obviously survives. I mean, well, that's that's it, amazing. Story. Very unusual in uh, Auschwitz. About five hundred people were released from Auschwitz, and he was young and hadn't been charged with anything. And and um, uh, we we to this day aren't sure if if there was some deal with his, between his father or his mother and the and the SS or whatever. But we don't know of anything, and he didn't know of anything. But anyway, he was released. He was released with two other prisoners and sent wow. back on a train to Warsaw. Well, just to say, one day he just thinks he's got yeah. he's going to die. Yeah. It's going to be here for but, eternity, and, he, and, and then he, suddenly he gets called out. And he was very very ill. He almost died. In fact, he remembers um, he remembered being taken. What well, for malnutrition and just uh, he got typhus, and he was oh taken to the which was very common in the. In in the camps and he was taken to the this infirmary which still exists he pointed out where it was and and there were two doctors arguing over him he remembered this to whether or not he should live or die and the older doctor went you know there's no hope there's absolutely no hope he's just gone that's forget it let's take oh my goodness and the younger guy said no he's really really young you know let's give him a chance and and they for about five or six days he was completely out of it and were but these German so, doctors or were they uh, Polish doctors? Well, no, they were Polish. They were Polish working in the in the camp right. at, for the Germans, though. Okay, know, but but they had but some they, compassion. Yeah, of course they were. They were they were very compassionate toward the prisoners. These right. these were not Mengele doctors. Right. These were people who were um, hated what they were forced to do. Actually, but and uh, and it was a very interesting thing. Again, you know, the, the horror of, of being even in the in the infirmary. As he got a little bit better, um, he got to know some of the we weren't allowed to talk to each other but he got to know some of the other prisoners well one of them was one of the great greatest uh, economics professors in in central european history actually professor heidel who taught in paris and all sorts of other places and he was in this in this infirmary as well he was one of the uh, professors who'd been rounded up in the infamous roundup of the university professors from krakow university and there he was, and um, he very quietly, you know, would go and speak to him because he was a great hero of his, and he would right. sort of talk to him about about his life and so on. And Heidel thought he was probably going to die, and they were having this secret conversation. All of a sudden, they got they had signals already, you know, between the prisoners if the, if somebody was coming. SS came out, took him outside on, in the hallway, and shot him. Hello, it's James Holland here. While I've got your attention. I hope you won't mind me mentioning a book I wrote called Normandy 44, D-Day and the Battle for France. You may have heard me mention this before, but I hate to say it, Christmas is getting nearer. And if you're thinking of what to buy for those with an interest in history, and especially those fascinated, as Al and I are, by the Second World War, well, perhaps this might be something to consider. This is just a mention, nothing more. I think there's something for everyone in it. Bags of human drama, plenty of easy-to-follow analysis, a bit of myth-busting, pictures, maps and I hope all put together in a way that makes for a fascinating and fast-paced read. That's the aim, at any rate. And should this be a book that is stirring interest, then it's very easy to buy. From Waterstones, Amazon, or any bookshop throughout our great land. Thank you, and Happy Christmas. My father-in-law wrote a book called My Auschwitz, Moi Auschwitz, it's in Polish, and he dedicated it to Professor Heidel, and wow. he was able to tell his family, his very famous family in Poland, what happened to their father or their grandfather now. And this, but this is the sort of brutal, just, oh, just oh. completely, it's just, you know. Uh, so, so, but, 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 but so gets out of Auschwitz, and, but he's not going to. I mean, how did he survive the war? Well, he he goes back to Warsaw on this train. He a very interesting experience because he's so brutalized already. It's a complete, you know, and, and he gets on this train, and the people are very very sympathetic because Poles understand that there are these camps growing up right. all over the place. So they're sympathetic, but they don't know what to do. And a young girl um, gives him her, her sandwiches, like wow. sort of school type sandwiches. Yeah. And he said it was the first kind gesture that he'd experienced, you know, for months and months and months to keep 
began to realize. So how long had he been in that? He was almost a year, so he was wow. And um, he survives the winter, which is amazing in and of itself, yep. the sorts yep. of things that you go through with no food and no clothing and stuff, which is also why he was so weak and got so ill. Anyway, he gets back to Warsaw. He's uh, six months lying in bed in the, in, in the flat. And at that point, a very close friend of his called Hanka Chaka is this... Uh, he... he um, is, is trying to recover, recuperate, and his mom and this mom's taking care of him, and this young girl comes over, and uh, she uh, is in the resistance already, and she writes down his testimony, because they don't know what Auschwitz is, you know, it's so right. secret, they didn't right. have a clue what it was, so he writes, he narrates what happened, it's called um, Auschwitz Diary of a Prisoner, and, and it's the first officially recognized eyewitness testimony from Auschwitz. And they and they send it to the Polish government in exile in London. They changed the ending to make it look like he died, so that they couldn't try and trace him. But otherwise, it's completely accurate. And uh, and so this becomes kind of a world, you know, moment when this this first document starts to show what's going on in this terrible camp. Of course, it gets way way worse later. But he was very lucky to survive. When he gets better, he goes to his. Um, Priest, it's a very famous uh, priest at uh, the Vizitki Church in, in Warsaw, and he says, like, I really don't know what to do, how to get over this, and um, and of course there's no hope of having a job or going to university or anything no. like that. Uh, and uh, the the priest says, help people who are worse off than you are, and and by which he meant the Jews. Uh, Vladek comes back to Warsaw and finds there's a wall around the ghetto yep. because it wasn't there when he left. Yep. And of course because he grew up in the Jewish at the edge of the Jewish quarter because his father lived in the National Bank and the bank right. is right at the edge of the Jewish quarter. A lot of Jewish friends coming to the house and so on yep. and played in the park with the Jewish kids. Sure. So for him, unlike a lot of people in Poland where there was both with the Jews and the Poles, there was a segregation really, right. self-imposed, cultural, religious. Sure. Um, but he didn't have that. So for him, the Jews were like, yeah, well, you know, whatever. whatever. Um, and m- much more like, I'd say, a, a British or North American upbringing that we, we take for granted. But in those days, it wasn't the case. And, um, and so he realizes, yes, this is exactly what I have to do because the ghetto is getting worse and worse. And he gets in touch with, um, with uh, various, uh, various acquaintances, including Hanka Chuck, who, who uh, recommends him to, to the underground. And it's uh, Jan Karski who becomes the great courier who sort of swears him in to the right. underground. And he co-founds this organization called Zhigota, which is a nonsense name, um, with a couple of other people to, to help to try and save the the uh, Jews from the God, ghetto. What and they get money from the Polish government in exile, but they also get money from American and British organizations that funnel money in through the Polish government in exile. In, and it's a specific department set up within the government, right. only one in Europe. It's completely unique. And they fly this money and, 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 and stuff in by the so-called Chico Chemne, trained by the SOE. They're called Silent and Unseen. These are Polish guys who are trained by the SOE to parachute into Poland on these secret missions. And, and hand over cash. And they and hand over cash or information or you know. God, it's just amazing, isn't it? It's incredible. And there's a Chicho Chemne, very famous Chicho Chemne drop just behind my house. Uh, so I, I always take my. Tourist. Is this your house in Warsaw? Because you got no, a house outside. Outside. You? outside. This is the this is the, the SS headquarters house outside. And there's a big huge. I should just I should just just say right here. You just say the SS headquarters house. So so you have your 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 place in the country is yes. just outside Warsaw. Yeah. And it's a it's a it's a. Nice pad. Yeah, nice pad. Uh, but, but but it is it was it was a SS headquarters in the war at one point. It was. and you and it got caught up in Operation Bagration, didn't it? It did. It, it did absolutely. It was uh, it, it was the headquarters. To, Which is of course the, the Russian offensive the, the in huge, Red Army offensive in the summer of 1944. Yeah, it was a huge, huge successful offensive, which Stalin certainly didn't expect to get to the gates of Warsaw, and this is what also triggers the Warsaw Uprising. So it's a very very interesting history. But Walter Model's right there uh, yes. with, with this big counter attack and the. Uh, Viking, SS Viking Division and SS Totenkopf are on the property and uh, God, led, by, uh, led by Herbert Gila. Yeah. Herbert Gila leads Viking and then Totenkopf are, are um, joined together just for, this, for these maneuvers and, they, and, and, um, <coughs> and uh, Herbert Gila takes over the house and that's his headquarters and he watches some of the battles between the Red Army and Walter Model's forces. Um, right on the edge of the property and in fact the village the next village over is taken on one day uh, taken over back and forth 12 times it's unbelievable oh it's just so have you got photos of them in the house 
I've got some photos of them in the house, and I've got. I mean, the how does that make you feel? I mean, that would just absolutely do my head in. Well, I didn't know when when I got the place. I wanted a nice little place for my kids to be just outside of Warsaw. Right. And I, but of course, I was doing work on the on the uprising. But I'm mostly interested in the battles that took place and caused the uprising. The uprising, of course, I'm interested in too. But I was fascinated by this because it's one of those. You know, David Glantz talks about these these yeah. battles of the Eastern Front that are just forgotten about, not known, or whatever. And for all sorts of reasons, and I think the main reason these battles and there were you know six hundred tanks destroyed. This, this, is, this is not chicken feed. This is these are the I biggest, know, that's, that's, that's the biggest big battles on, on Polish soil in World War Two. You know, even bigger right than thirty nine. Right on the doorstep. We are taking the dog a walk. Yeah, we're That's taking the dog for a walk. We're finding all this ordnance and stuff everywhere. Are you? Do you yes, survive that? Yes, oh, yes. Yeah, I've, I've got to come and see this. Tank tracks and, and bits of, bits of uh, you know, I mean, helmets and stuff all over the place. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, what we should do one of these days, we should, uh, you know, Al and I should come over yeah, and invite ourselves. And, yeah, just, and, just and, invite yourselves over. And, and you can give us a tour. Absolutely. I'd love to do that. And I'd also love and to do that. we can do Operation McGrath. I think yeah, people would be yeah, really interested. I'm really interested. Yeah, I'd love to do it. In fact, one of the tours I'm thinking of doing with the World War II Museum is when we're starting up a northern tour which is going from Hamburg all the way to the north and Pino, it's based on Pina Munda especially right. to see Werner von Braun and all that yeah, stuff yeah. but we're also going to do you know hit lots of the other things up in the north but the other um, one we're trying to put together and it depends a little bit as to whether or not we can get into Belarus easily start in Minsk and then go wow. through to Berlin so and you know that'd be amazing fact, wouldn't it? Heights and all that so I, oh the Zeller Heights are amazing I've been amazing? there those times yeah, yeah all the trenches and stuff incredible yeah. I mean you can just see how the whole battle kind of played out but, but hold on mate we're going to jump in because I, so, so what happens to your father-in-law he survives the whole flipping thing he does and he, then he I mean that's in, amazing he's involved in Jigota he, he, he survives and he's he's denounced many times in fact I, I, I got in the new World War II Museum in Gdansk there's one denunciation notice to the Gestapo which of course these are all intercept, intercepted by the Polish Home Army. They intercept all his mail going to the. I mean, the Polish Home Army. Home Army is amazing. They've got like four hundred thousand guys. It's um, pretty sophisticated. They're very sophisticated. It's whole underground state, whole underground universities, underground army. It, it's just incredible. So just in a different league to literally every other. Every other movement. one. The only thing that's comparable is perhaps Yugoslavia, but in terms of in terms of the fighting arm. But in terms of a whole underground culture and why the Poles have been living under uh, Austrian, Prussian, and Russian rule for one hundred twenty-three years, and they right. learn how to. How to, how to do it. How to do it. So they got this little hiatus of 20 Whereas years. Whereas France, of course, has never had. Never so had it's, 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 you know, they, never, they don't know how to do it. So they, they do their best. But, you know, and France is also much more complicated politically because yes. it's like Norway or whatever because they're right. treated so well. And they also had World War One and all that. Poland, you know, the Germans just go slamming right yep. in. They're not right. going to... Hitler won't have anything to do with any Poles. There's no uh, uh, SS militia. So, so interesting. <laughs> it's just bang. And that's the thing. So they, there's just no hope of... I mean, I'm sure some Poles would have collapsed if they'd have been given enough incentive or whatever but there, there was just no way because Hitler hated them right. so much there was just no way there's right. just not going to happen right, right, right. Um, and of course there was also the the, um, the quite substantial uh, German uh, Volksdeutsch minority in Poland yes um, and, and because of places like Bydgoszcz and other towns mm-hmm. quite sizable German minorities and, and, and they did many of them did collaborate not all but many of them did collaborate with the Germans and so that provided the sort of sixth, fifth column uh, which was very unpleasant as well and they'd give people away and stuff but anyway back to the denunciations we have uh, three of them two are in the uh, Polish National Archive and one is in the museum in Gdansk denouncing my father-in-law saying you know this guy's saving Jews got money you know something has to be Maybe. done and all three of them are what two are anonymous and one is from a, a Polish person we don't know if it's a man or a woman who actually signs a name whether it's right real or not intercepted by the by the uh, uh, Polish underground before it gets to the Gestapo and they're and, and uh, thereafter preserved so it's absolutely amazing so and these are Poles How who are denouncing absolutely him amazing. <laughs> you know not German so he survives Poles, and he survives this and um, another really interesting thing is that there's a little museum dedicated to him in Wrocław, and the and at the um, because he dedicated his papers and stuff to the big Polish national archive called Osolonem, and so they put a little museum up in, in his honor, which is lovely. And one of the most amazing things, aside they've got his original Auschwitz papers and photograph and all that kind of stuff there, but one of the most I don't want to say beautiful, but amazing things is these little teeny tiny kind of pieces of onion skin uh, paper, you know, the little tiny pieces of paper with little tiny receipts of of money that were, uh, that the Jewish recipients of um, money, uh, these little tiny things that they weren't supposed to keep. It's called the Felicia Archive. And uh, the woman who was uh, managing this 
hid them in her back garden, d- dug a hole and hid them, and so they survived the war. So we have this, these little tiny um, mementos, anyway, of the work that Jigotta did, giving money, you know, giving, and, and they also did um, find apartments. Vladislav uh, uh, Spielmann, the, the right. pianist, was yes, a great yes, friend yes. of Vladislav Stad's. Uh, oh, he was goodness. he was one of the uh, the Amazing. zookeeper the zookeeper's wife he worked yeah, together yeah. with him the wife wasn't that important but wow. it's a good story but um, but God, the, it's just the amazing isn't yeah. it I mean how much the, how how sort of extraordinary to have sort of married into all that oh yeah it was my and the, and there's, 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 you know you're you're from the west coast of Canada and suddenly yeah, you yeah. know where it's all so far removed and suddenly yeah. you're sort of right in this world yeah amazing. and I mean I met Vladik at Oxford and I immediately liked the guy but I had no idea. Who Vladislav Bartoszewski was? His father, because the communist communism was still right. in place. I met him in 1980. First saw him in 1985. We kind of met. Um, the Ralph Darn, the head of our college, introduced us at a kind of drinks party, and we sort of went ah. And I had no idea. In fact, I thought he was going to be like a communist spy or something because I was at St. Anthony's <laughs> College, which is the the spy college. Right. And and the, generally speaking, the rule was that if you were at university at, in Oxford or Cambridge um, or one of the other British universities from a communist country, that you were probably some reprobate who was being paid by the communist right. government. So right, I right, right. immediately was terribly suspicious and thought, yeah. oh my God, you know. But Ralph Darendorf introduced us, and then I asked around a few friends, uh, Tim Garton Ash and some others, and said, do you know this guy? And they said, well, you know, his dad, you know, has been in prison for most of his Stalinist period, and, and you know, Vladik was kicked out of Poland because um, he was told he couldn't continue his university degree because they were politically unacceptable. So he had family in England who helped him to carry on his education. So his father was then in prison by the... Uh, he, by, was, by he was in prison for solidarity. So he was in prison by, by um, the Nazis at Auschwitz, and then he was imprisoned in uh, seven years in Stalinist prison. And then he was imprisoned oh in uh, solidarity for, uh, under martial law. So 1981, martial law happens. Vladek's kicked out of university, and, and my Vladek is kicked out of university, gets his way to England to his family by going through Algeria because he's an anthropologist, and he got a fake permission to go and do some anthropology work in Algeria, hightails it to England, is illegal in England, I suppose, for years, and then gets, gets his degree, writes his degree at Cambridge. The guy doesn't speak a word of English, speaks French. He refused to learn Russian because... You know, mm. hates Russians. Louis French. He writes a doctorate in English in three years at Cambridge. I can, you know, that's just, your Vladek. That, that's my Vladek. I could just, I'm like, ah, wow. You know, just, like, that's okay. super impressive. I wish I could have, I could have that gift for language. Anyway, so that's that's what happens, and then we we sort of hit it off, and I learned his father's history long after, you know, and I met his dad in 1986. He came to speak at Oxford. And it was a fascinating experience because he came to um, to give a talk at uh, at the university, and um, and he you know gave his talk and was talking about Poland and stuff. And he was he was a very affable, fun, very funny, witty, hilarious person, really fun, and uh, and we got along extremely well. I remember he gave a speech and then he was sort of meeting and greeting sort of Polish people and stuff like that, and then the old professors and stuff. And then he, his face kind of went ash and white, and he put his arms down beside him, and he said, get that woman away from me. And I said, what the hell? And Vladek realized who it was. It was Madame Bruce, Mrs. Bruce, who was married. She had been, um, had a different name. She'd been married to somebody else before. Turned out she was married to the chief prosecutor in Stalinist Poland, and she herself had become a prosecutor in Stalinist Poland. And... Um, She'd since married um, Professor Bruce, who was a very famous economist, went with him um, to, to Oxford and lived the wife of a you know, wonderful economics professor. Right. But she had been responsible. Every two months, he was taken from his prison cell, brought up to her, her office... And she signed on him going back to the prison cell every two no. months. For, in, you know, there were two different phases of oh his incarceration, but this went on with her for about four years. And, and he was like, <laughs> this woman away yeah. from me. You know, it was just incredible. So this is my kind of first wow, introduction. Wow, you just to, couldn't make that up. No, you? no, it was just unbelievable. So this was the kind of the first meeting at the official meeting at Oxford. But anyway, so his, his life was incredible. And, and, How and, absolutely and, amazing. I'm, I'm just absolutely... Yes, and, and one of the questions that came up earlier, which I, I felt was really, really interesting, was this, this whole thing, and it, it does come up from time to time, and I feel really inadequately informed about how to answer, is how much the Allies knew about Auschwitz and the mm. death camps, and could they have done anything about it? 
This is a really interesting question, very, very complicated one. And I, I, I'm torn about this as well because you read something and then you read something else and it completely contradicts what you think. That people say, well, why didn't the Germans do something? Because they must have known about Auschwitz. And then, uh, you know, I do a lot of work in Warsaw and in particular the... Um, Jews from Warsaw, who almost whom, of whom perished in Treblinka. Treblinka was just an extermination camp north of Warsaw. It was the second highest death toll, around about 800, 850,000 people. Um, and um, because of Vladek's father and Vladek, uh, I, I was incredibly fortunate to have met just so many amazing people. And one of them was Marek Edelman, who was the last head of the resistance, uh, Job, who uh, last resistance head. Uh, in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. He survived. He later became a very famous heart surgeon in Poland. He stayed in Warsaw. And he, um, he uh, once, I remember talking to him about this very question, you know, how much do people know and so on. And he said that when they were, when they were, when the Großaktion first started happening, Operation Reinhardt, when they started to first empty the ghetto, people still really believed that they were going to be taken to something better further east, work camps, because there, there was this argument, you know, why would they kill us off? We're, we're you know, a good workforce or whatever, it doesn't make sense, it wasn't logical. So even the Jews within the ghetto were thinking, were sort of justifying that somehow everything was going to be okay. So they were taken on the trains. But then both the Polish Home Army and the Jewish underground and so on, they all they began to exchange information following the trains to Treblinka, realizing they were going full, coming back empty, there was no food ever going there and so on. And they began to put two and two together and realized that something terrible was going on. And there was also people like, what's his name, Gerstein or whatever his name yeah, was? Yeah, and there were, there were a few people who... who uh, sort of told them, because he told the, the, the West, didn't he? Yes, there were, there were a few people who did. And, Gerstein, and that was his name? There was Weichel from um, Treblinka. But anyway, the, uh, the, just to finish this, the, the, um, the, they realized that something terrible was happening. But, but uh, Marek Edelman said... They, they started to try and um, kind of motivate the ghetto in which there were about 440,000 people left uh, to you know, were part of this uprising to try and motivate everybody in the ghetto to, to take part in the uprising because they knew that you know, they, they were going to be killed off in Treblinka. And the idea was you're not, going to, you're not really going to win against the German might of the Germans, but at least you die with a gun in your hand. At least you, you die resisting. And he said the Germans came to the, that because they were going to, still doing um, the second phase of the of the Cossacks of the roundups and the d- deportations to Treblinka came with uh, marmalade and bread and and Mark Edelman said we were, we went around to people who were saying they're giving us marmalade and bread and, and he'd say don't get on the train join us in the fight come to the cellars or whatever so even at that last you know that last moment there were people wow. who still believed so even with the information they didn't quite believe and that right. tempers my view of the western response because it's a very very complicated one but there's a very famous uh, situation where, first of all, you have um, Pilecki, who gets himself into Auschwitz yes. and then out again. Um, later on, there are the two uh, uh, Slovaks who, who escape from Auschwitz-Birkenau, and they go and report in Hungary to the fact that, the hun- that they were working on these ramps that the Hungarian Jews were going to be brought in and murdered on. They, they right. hear all of this stuff. Right. And this is absolutely 100% proof and evidence that this is going to happen. Um, but uh, Jan Karski... Because the railway originally stopped about a mile outside. out. Outside, yeah, and they had to walk. And, and, and it's, they, they rebuilt it. So the, the, the famous picture... Of, yeah. of the kind of yeah. entranceway at Birkenau yeah. with the railway going right yeah, through the arch. that's very late. That, that, yeah. is, that is made, I think, finished and completed in May 1944. Absolutely, and it's Specifically very for the Hungarian for Jews. Hungarian yeah, Jews. absolutely right. And, and so what happens is that they, um, uh, they're starting to collect all this information. Jan Karski, who's another of the famous couriers who, who dresses up as a German and crosses Europe a few times, it's unbelievable, these, these people, um, uh, gets himself into the Warsaw Ghetto and also gets himself into a sub-camp of Chelno, which is one of the big extermination camps, and, uh, and, and sees what's going on, and then gets himself to the UK by this very incredible route, and, um, and goes to the Polish government in exile with this report, goes to, uh, and, and eventually um, ends up in, in to, goes to Roosevelt and goes to um, the Chief Justice uh, Felix Frankfurt. Right, so they know. Well, he goes to Roosevelt. Roosevelt doesn't even want to talk to him. He talks about, about horses, you know, aren't there great horses in Poland? He just, he just brushes them off. Right. And, um, and Felix Frankfurt, there's this very, very famous meeting, controversial meeting, when, when Karski goes into the office in Washington with uh, the ambassador and Felix Frankfurter, and, and the ambassador says, you tell your story, and, and he does, and Felix Frankfurter paces up and down and gets all agitated. And, and then he says, it's not that I, uh, th- I think you're lying, it's just that I don't believe you. 
And you know, this is this is the problem, right? It's just so unbelievable that that people couldn't grasp what was going on. Yep. So even when evidence, well, I can understand that because I mean, like, you know, you're, you, it, 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 it is, is unbelievable. so hard to get your yeah. head around. And you've got, you is, can't imagine how it gets to this. And the other thing is that that I think what 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 actually made it much more complex was exactly after the war, uh, there were so many people said, well, the Germans must have known, and they had to go and, and mm. line up and see the Bergen Belsen, you know, piles of bodies at, at, at Dachau and so on, and all the Germans must have known, and yet. This conflicts with the, the, for example, the utter secrecy. And I know you've been to Auschwitz, Auschwitz, Birkenau. Well, there I don't were, believe there that were, everyone knew it. There were some young women, for example. There was some very, very interesting uh, stuff has been published, you know, in the last twenty years about this. Young women, for example, who were forced to work as sort of uh, serving girls at the SS head, SS guys' houses that were just outside of the camp limits. And um, there was one case, for example, of a young girl who. There was a typhus scare in the in the camp and then in the village, and she was supposed to go and have a typhus shot. She was told to go into the main the main Auschwitz one, uh, but she got the day day or the time wrong, and she ended up going in. Um, somehow got herself in and um, and was heading toward where she'd been told to meet whoever was going to give her the shot for typhus, and um, and got in huge trouble because she'd gone inside the camp without an escort or whatever. Because even though she worked for the SS family and so on, she, was supposed she to see. wasn't supposed to see. She wasn't supposed to know about it. They were so completely crazy about secrecy. That was the whole thing about uh, when they when you know when they closed down Treblinka and Helmo and, and all these other places. Then they have this horrible action where they dig out all these bodies. You know, can you imagine like 600,000, 650,000 decomposing uh, bodies that, are, that, are, that have to be cremated now so so the the western the western allies have been given you know it has been brought to their attention yes yeah and they and, uh, i mean the, the thing is if you go around sort of bombing Auschwitz, you're going to kill lots of people anyway aren't you well this is the question i i talked to a number of inmates and and uh, my father-in-law also thought they should have bombed and they should have just just been, it should have been all over the airwaves you know it, it just done bring it yes, to but, but, but how, how does that kind of look if you kind of, sort of bomb this camp into, well, and destroyed it but well, you've also killed all the inmates this is something you you would know more about than i do actually because um because i was actually just reading something recently um about and and a, a couple of interviews with um Pilots who, for example, you know when the shuttle mission was, mm. w- because the Poltava base was blown up, then they started um, doing sort of sh- quote-unquote shuttle mission, but with um, P-51s, with a bomb underneath, whatever else. You know, th- there was an argument that maybe you could get closer and you could just zoom in and yeah. drop some bombs yeah. and be quite accurate and, and then get out again. And, 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 and those people who, well, I don't know because I'm not the bomber guy, but, uh, but, if, but there's a question of, of um, whether or not, even if you hadn't been accurate, the survivors that I've talked to, I'm thinking in particular of a most marvelous guy called Marian Turski, who's incredible, um, uh, but many others who have asked this very question and they say, we would have rather died in the bombing than being gassed or being just worked to death and so on. And, and, and the disruption, had they managed to, you know, it took eight months to build those those uh, it was the gas chamber. It's not the crematoria that mattered. No. It was the actual gas chamber facility. And if they could have damaged that somehow, even give it a try, you know. Yeah. Um, and those people I've talked to, okay, it's not a representative sample. Maybe many other people feel differently, but they right. said we'd rather try. My father-in-law's argument was at, at try bring attention to it. Yeah. Don't let the Nazis think they're going to get away with this. What they've yes. done to Treblinka, yes, what they've yes, done to Helena. Yes. And also, he said that should have been on like the BBC because everybody listened to the BBC who who could get away with right. it. Um, you know, we we are naming and shaming you. Right. You're, you know, and is there any reason why they don't do that? It's because they don't quite they, believe it. They do it a little bit. I mean, toward the end, there are. Yeah. In fact, Marian Chusky, who I mentioned, was in the Wood Ghetto. He was a young guy, and um, he works with uh, a small group of underground people in the Wood Ghetto. They were socialists. They were left wing. Right. And he, uh, his job, because he spoke some English, was to write down the BBC messages secretly in the Wood right. Ghetto. And he did hear these BBC, um, these BBC broadcasts, first of all, telling about the camps and so on. So they knew oh, what really? was happening. Yeah. So, so he, they, they knew God, through the... it feels the, like there's more work to be done on all this. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's just... So why hasn't just, someone done it? Because it's such a hot It's potato. a drop in the ocean. It's, it, there's a huge amount of scholarship, huge amount of work going on now, but it only started in the 1980s. I mean... You know, before that, the the real focus, as you well know, on World War II history was the, the guns and ammo stuff, yeah, and Hitler yeah. and Hitler Himmler Goebbels Goering, yeah. and all that kind of stuff, and 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 also, as you well know, 
the uh, Nazi generals uh, were very, very good at pretending that they'd had nothing to do with this, yes. hadn't, didn't have well, a clue, was, yep. and, uh, and all that. Absolutely. Something you know an, an awful lot about, too. You've read mm. many of their, you know, these sort of very... Uh, yeah, the lion you know, swine. The, yeah, lion swine. And, and you know, and, and so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's starting to become... And the thing that my, my big uh, thesis, and, I, and I'm, I'm certainly not, not unique or original in this, is to um, look at the, the, the whole of this. I mean, to me, the, mm. the, the Holocaust, the mass murder, the treatment of my father-in-law, the, the killing of the Poles, the decapitation of Polish and then Soviet society, which was supposed to happen before the mass murder of the Jews and even before the mass murder of the Soviet, murder by starvation of the Soviet POWs, mm. was um, was the decapitation of, of society in Soviet Union. This was all to be part and parcel of this these big war aims. So yes, you got the guns and ammo stuff, but the but the killing of these populations or the controlling of these populations is part of the war aim. Right, and that's what the the German generals after the war pretended that that wasn't the case. Yes. This is why I, I just have well, no there's time. Well, there's a whole hunger plan, which yeah, is Wehrmacht. Yeah, exactly. That's so why I don't have time for Rommel. I know a lot of people think he's so great. I, I just no time for the guy because he was right in there, right, yeah. in, right in it when it when it all started. And at the end, he sort of thinks Hitler's not running the war very well and maybe, you know, we can get rid of him and do something else. But, but I mean... So I'm much more empathetic to him than most of the rest of them, but nevertheless, yes. they're all gun they're, they're, They've all got blood on their hands, they're, they're, all, all, they're yeah. all up to their necks. In it, yeah, and they're all ready to go kill, you know, Eric wow. Baxilevsky, 12 million people the first winter. Oops, you know, I mean, by starvation, just ordinary yeah. people. Horrible. I'm, I'm, I'm unbelievable. So that's my, wow. my, that's my next book. Is well, the, is that, the, that has been <laughs> the most amazing hour. I'm absolutely... That, that, that has just been fantastic. Look, God, we've been talking for an hour. These, these podcasts are supposed to be half an hour. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, we've been talking for exactly one hour, but that is absolutely, that's just, that has been really, really incredible. Well, cheers. Really incredible. <laughs> and um, You're coming to Warsaw next. So. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I don't know, we'll hop for it out at some point. Oh, that'd be amazing. Fantastic, yeah. Brilliant. Alex, thank you. Thank you.